Hello and welcome to the Body Track Academy, created by EPs for EPs. We'll cover all things clinical, business and personal growth to help you and the exercise physiology industry reach its potential. If you enjoyed this episode and find something useful, you know what to do. Hit the subscribe button, leave us a review and tell your friends to check it out. If you haven't already joined the Body Track Academy on Facebook, look us up, join our community of exercise physiologists, and access more great content. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Body Track Academy podcast. Um, today, we have another women's health uh, podcast for you. We're going to be focusing a little bit more or diving a bit deeper into the topic of menopause. Um, I'd love to welcome to the show today, we have Jackie um, with us who works at BodyTrack. She is very much a specialist in women's health area as well. So um, she's got a lot of great knowledge about the area of menopause. And we wanted to jump on today to um, talk to you about our experience and why we've actually found learning a little bit more about um, menopause has actually really helped open our eyes to a few other um, areas of, of our practice and ways to assist our, our patients that have meant we've been able to get some um, further results in, in the clinic for, for women who are um, starting to experience or going through or have um, passed menopause. So I'd like to introduce Jackie. Welcome, Jackie. Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming on. Um, yeah, today talking a little bit more about... Um, uh, our experience with learning a little bit more about menopause. Jackie, do you want to tell me a little bit more about what's kind of prompted your interest in the area? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that my interest in menopause has been sparked by the older adult clients that I see here at Body Track um, reporting symptoms that they're not too sure of why that's happening in terms of um, hormonal changes and things like that and sort of accepting um, those symptoms without explanation or without reason. Um, and that sort of opened my eyes a little bit more mm -hmm. to how women change over the lifespan and actually giving our clients a bit more understanding of why they might be experiencing that and um, ways to manage it as well. Yeah, so I guess we're kind of talking a little bit more broader than the characteristic things that we know about menopause. So hot flushes, hot flashes, sleep disturbance, they're pretty common things that women know and report um, experiencing and, and we know commonly um, as correlated with menopause. But we're probably talking a little bit more about um, changes in kind of bone pain, in um, musculoskeletal symptoms like tendinopathies. We might be talking about changes in um, pelvic or, or sexual health as well that the patient might be unsure of why they're experiencing experiencing changes there um yeah so we're kind of talking a little bit more broadly about how we've learned a lot more about how menopause can actually affect um a lot of the different systems and not just those vasomotor symptoms that we know are quite closely correlated with menopause so yeah we're really hoping that we can share some of the interesting um things and and resources that we've we've found and um have found helpful um i guess Probably starting with what is menopause <laughs> as a definition, if you want to go for that one, Jackie. Um, well, menopause is first seen as when um, our production of hormones, especially estrogen, is ceased. And it's been defined as the period where you're going without a period for 12 months in a row. Um, so that's where it can get a little bit confusing in terms of the timeline. 
for women to determine what stages of menopause they're in. Um, so I suppose delving into that a little bit more, you get your perimenopause before menopause. Um, and what that means is when women experience their last regular menstrual cycle. Now that could be regular in terms of frequency or duration. Um, and that sort of inconsistency can span from four to six years. Um, really, uh, it can vary for every woman um, in her own experience. But menopause itself has been defined as the cessation of um, menopause, or sorry, cessation of men of menstrual cycle for 12 months in yeah. a row. Yeah. And that's great. And it's so interesting. Like I personally didn't realize until started to learn a little bit more about menopause that menopause is actually just that term for that period of, of, of distinct change. And mm. the majority of the symptoms that women start to experience is actually occurs during that perimenopause stage. And that can span like five to 10 years, if not slightly longer. So people start to experience the onset of of menopausal related changes from usually around 40 because the average age of menopause is is 51. Um, and then as a consequence of that hormonal change, which we'll talk a little bit more about why the hormonal change has such an impact on the body, um, is that we then move into um, a state of absence or reduction of estrogen, which has some flow-on effects in that post-menopausal stage. So menopause is specifically that period of defined absence of estrogen. And it's really interesting because there's not a lot of actual tests that can determine like they look a little bit at FSH and that's kind of where they get a bit of an idea about whether there's um, indication of, of menopause, but there's not a hard and fast test to say, yep, you're, you're in menopause or you've been through menopause. They mostly evaluate that on the basis of symptoms. So um, yeah, hopefully that gives you a bit more of an idea of kind of what the changes can be over the, and why women do actually start to, to note them quite earlier than you might actually, might actually think. Yeah. Um, so perimenopause, um, can, as I said, span a number of, of years. Um, so we can start to see the early signs of, of menopause quite early on in the piece. We do also know that for some women, early onset menopause is something that they are faced with and, and can experience. Um, Jackie, do you want to talk a little bit more about early onset menopause? Sure. Um, so early onset menopause is usually when a woman experiences her final menstrual cycle before the age of 45 years old. Um, now, if it's prior to 40 years old, that's also defined by premature menopause. Um, and the causations of that can reign from multitudes of things. Um, so you can have it from a spontaneous point of view, from a causation uh, surgically induced or pharmacological um, induced as well. So those sort of areas can, again, predispose a woman to early onset menopause. Yeah. And you can imagine if a woman is going through menopause a little bit earlier in life um, uh, compared to the average, they're having a longer period exposed to um, uh, the physiological risk that we know can be associated with that decline in estrogen, such as an elevated cardiac risk, metabolic risk, um, uh, changes in musculoskeletal and skeletal um, function. So if there's that 
period or that kind of earlier exposure to to the to the protective effects of to the absence of protective effects of estrogen um, you can imagine how this might have some some impacts on the types of conditions that women are experiencing and and therefore then the role of exercise in helping them to assist that so really we do have a big um, place in helping these people not only going through natural or the average menopause, but early, also early onset or premature. Um, I'll add into the piece as well. It's common to see early onset menopause um, or premature menopause as a result of um, cancer-based treatments as well. So particularly um, for uh, breast and gynecological um, cancers, we can actually see um, either transient or permanent um, or induced menopause, sorry, um, as a result of um, cancer treatments. So chemotherapy is an agent that can promote transient um, menopause and then surgical removal of the of the ovaries and or the um, uterus through a hysterectomy as part of treatment um, can also induce menopause. And the interesting thing about our pharmacological or surgical induced menopauses, it does mean that there's not that gradual decline of estrogen over the course of say five to 10 years. It's a really sudden drop in that estrogen and all of a sudden all the estrogen receptors in the body are like, what, what's happening? And all the processes that are relying on and usually um, uh, dictated by the presence of estrogen and all of a sudden have this major physiological change. So we can see quite an, um, uh, an increase in the severity of, of the symptoms that women experience when they're going through this kind of more rapid um, menopause. So they might have really extreme vasomotor symptoms. They might have a really big change in their, in their bone health. Um, they might yeah, ha have a bigger predisposition to um, elevated cardiac risk. So we've started to tease a few sorts of things that um, are common symptoms and side effects and implications of menopause. So we're going to move into talking about some of the common symptoms of, of menopause for you to, to look out for and start to get an, um, uh, an idea about for your practice. You might have some clients start to come to mind. Um, and then we'll move into understanding a little bit more about the impact of, of menopause on the different physiological symptoms. So Jackie and I are going to go start working through a few of the um, common symptoms that we've already started to touch on, but we'll talk about them a little bit more. Um, Jackie, do you want to start with the vasomotor symptoms that can be common? Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, so when women may come in and present with these menopausal symptoms, especially the vasomotor symptoms. It's not uncommon to hear clients report things like they're starting to feel really hot throughout the day and it's coming in waves um, or they're having excessive sweating uh, moments when they're just doing their day-to-day -day tasks. Um, a lot of other things can be in this vasomotor umbrella term. It's things like um, difficulty sleeping mm. as well. Um, and the brain fog seems to be a really common one that we've seen with clients quite a bit. Um, they're not too sure what that symptom is or how to explain it. And they just go, I'm just feeling a little bit foggy, a bit, um, yeah, brain fog, I think is yeah, the, the right term yeah, for it. Yeah, but yeah, definitely. And like, I think the, from what they know from the research um, thus far into why um, women in perimenopause and menopause, postmenopause experience 
brain fog, it's because we have like a number of estrogen receptors within the brain that are no longer being supplied estrogen. And so within that period of, of change, they can experience that sensation of, of brain fog. And it can be quite frustrating because not a lot of people know that is why or the people around them may not know why they may not understand why they're having some changes in their recall or their cognition um and it can be very frustrating um for them as well so it's it's something to be aware of because you can add a lot more obviously understanding to the mix or even help educate a, a, a patient about it as well and refer them on um for appropriate management if it's something that's causing them them distress yeah because it can be pretty hard when you're say you have kids or you have a job and you're all of a sudden not feeling like you're on top of your game and not sure why. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting with the vasomotor um, symptoms as well. Sometimes you'll be in the middle of a session and your patient might say, oh, I just had a hot flush during the... And you can't see anything change, but they've gone through what can be either quite a mild or quite a severe feeling of sudden heat and um, that kind of overwhelming feeling um, that can be quite temporary or it can be a little bit persistent as well. Yeah. Yeah. I've had a few, a few clients in a session as well. Caitlin mentioned that hot flush moment and it's the way that one client explained it to me was she just felt it came from the chest and then sort of worked its way up through her neck and it just felt again, really overwhelming and just had to stop exercising for a second go out for a bit of a breather get some fresh air we have a really good tunnel outside of body track so it's got its own little wind tunnel so she walked out and then came back in and felt 100 percent better so yeah those yeah. sort of being aware of those moments and then allowing them to get those drinks of water get fresh air have fans circulating throughout the gym is um those little one percenters that help those clients that have those symptoms yeah, to absolutely. manage like accommodating for it as opposed to just being like oh that's too bad yeah <laughs> um because it's it's pretty challenging and it can be um it can be a means to put people off doing exercise like um i i don't know of any real correlation between exercise and increased frequency what we what we do know is that um exercise particularly trying to um re manage weight maintain a healthy weight um trying to promote good cardiac health um, and promoting healthy lifestyle behaviours is best shown to help try and reduce the frequency or the severity of the vasomotor symptoms. I remember looking into it once because I was like, surely there's some way to try and help reduce this. And one of the big things that was actually mentioned is reducing alcohol intake. Alcohol intake is one of the biggest things that is correlated with increased severity and frequency of, of vasomotor um, symptoms. And that's because after going through menopause, there's reduced availability of alcohol dehydrogenase, which is the thing that helps us break down alcohol. So they actually really recommend trying to really cut back um, your alcohol intake, if not almost completely where possible as well, because it's really not well tolerated by the body and can have really negative implications from a metabolic point of view, but is also quite well correlated, unfortunately, with the severity of of vasomotor symptoms yeah so we might use that to segue into some of the metabolic um, symptoms that can be experienced as a result of of menopause as well Jackie um yeah sure so um like we've mentioned early on um menopause is impacting all the symptoms within all the physiological symptoms uh, sorry all the physiological systems within the body um so looking at the metabolic changes that can be impacted is there is an increase in 
the visceral fat um, as well as your central adiposity. Now, in terms of how that change happens is um, typically women have, we have our breast tissue, which is um, firm in terms of preparing for um, pregnancy and providing milk to little bub. Um, so once we've gone into menopause, those systems are, those cells are being replaced by fat cells and that changes the, um, the shape and the um, firmness of the breast tissue. So that from a musculoskeletal point of view, that's sort of what's happening um, in that point of view. Um, also, we're losing quite a bit of muscle mass. So mm -hmm. muscle atrophy is a common one that women see quite a lot of. Um, so those are probably the biggest ones that I think yeah. touch on that subject as well and go Definitely. hand in hand. So looking at the metabolic um, impacts sort of links into quite a bit of the systems and it has that domino effect. Mm. Um, and that's where we can start to link a lot of those symptoms and a lot of those changes yeah. and give that reasoning of to why it's happening. Absolutely. And it might, you, you probably are seeing all the time, like women, um, middle-aged and older are coming in They've put on weight all of a sudden and like I'm eating really well. I'm exercising a lot. Why am I putting on weight around my abdomen and my, my hips? And um, it's actually due to that menopausal change when there's the absence of estrogen. We know that our fat cells are, can produce estrogen. So the body actually tries to maintain some level of homeostasis by um, accruing some fat. And we store it around the abdomen and it is really hard to, to get rid of. Um, for a lot of people, we won't actually be able to, not won't, but there's a low likelihood of being able to actually eliminate all of that body fat and it can be really quite hard to to reduce. So helping people to understand um, actually why they might be experiencing an increase in, in, in weight gain all of a sudden can be helpful for them to have a better understanding of the appropriate level of training. It can reduce the risks of overtraining, it can help them a little bit more with adherence where where possible and also help kind of normalize the experience to an extent as well because it can be extremely frustrating and difficult to come to terms with from from a body image point of view and also touching on the the breast changes as well like that has a big difference for for a lot of women um and also has impacts on the types of bras they they should be wearing which is also in interesting that sometimes they might need to convert to a more supportive bra as well so um, some little considerations and things that we've found really helpful to have a better understanding of. Um, Jackie, you touched on changes in lean muscle mass. Do you, did you want to expand on that a little bit more? Or did you want to move into the changes for bone health? Yeah, I think they tie in nicely hand in hand. Yeah. So, um, from, again, from that muscle mass atrophy, as I mentioned before, um, that can have that domino effect on the bone mineral density and integrity for women moving forwards in terms of what exercise is appropriate for them. Um, we know that estrogen plays a vital role in the bone breakdown and rebuild of the bone um, integrity. So once that reduces, there is a significant change in terms of how the body adapts and can optimize that um, osteogenic adaptation yeah. point of view um, as well. So those, again, go hand in hand quite a bit. Um, and bone mineral density should be something really highlighted for people, for women in this um, population um, and in this time of their lifespan as well, because it's better for us. And we all know 
um, from an exercise physiology point of view that addressing bone mineral density right from the get-go is going to be the best protocol moving forwards. Um, and I think that can be another thing to highlight for women. Like you mentioned earlier, yeah. Caitlin, they come in and they've noticed they've gained um, weight and they can't lose weight, sort of changing the narrative around that and going, all right, well, let's look at that, your bone mineral density and reduce those risks of falls and fractures and improve what you're doing from an activities of daily living point yeah. of view um, rather than from an image point of view as Absolutely. well. Because um, that will that will help in terms of, you know, a mental health of managing what's been going on. Um, and again, looking at it, reducing that risk of entering osteopenia or osteoporosis diagnosis. Yeah, so. that is such a good point, Jackie, and really helping support people to feel confident in in themselves and in the process as well um we know when we make people feel comfortable they're more likely to to engage and and want to keep going it's it also comes back to that the actual period of of menopause has a real impact on bone loss as well like we are losing about 0.5 as females um per year from about 40 but by the time we actually go through menopause in the five I think it's five to seven years after we start losing about 20 in that period we can lose 20% of our bone mass so for someone who's already potentially had some other risk factors or just um, from a genetic point of view has a low um, bone mineral density or they may have yeah some of the other risk factors as well for them to lose 20% at the time of of menopause which is on average at 51 and then bone scans don't really start until I think is it 70 yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah, 65 maybe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a big gap in there unless people are actively asking for a bone scan or their mm. GP is is really proactive about it where they might it might be missed. And so addressing bone health from a really proactive approach because trying to regain bone is very difficult um, and it's a lot easier to try and take a preventive um, approach and address it as multifactorially as possible, not just exercise, diet and... Um, pharmacological if it needs to be as well in combination with, with the GP or with an endocrinologist. Yeah. Um, Jackie, tell me a little bit more about the cardiovascular symptoms. Um, yeah. So as we've touched on going into, again, what we're talking about with the estrogen being that protective measure from a bone mineral density point of view, it's also a cardioprotective um, aspect of the female physiological system. So um, that allows women to maintain, you know, good cardiac function throughout their 30s to 40s. And as Caitlin mentioned, once we hit the um, time frame of menopause, there's that sharp and dramatic decline with the onset of menopause. Um, so that can happen in terms of um, reducing vagal heart rate uh, modulation, um, your endothelial dysfunction and stiffness. So you'll notice an increase in systolic blood pressure. Um, there's also a reduction in our vasodilator substance and an increase in the low-grade uh, systemic inflammation. Um, and this can also have an effect on our cholesterol levels mm. as well. So, again, it has that, um, that domino um, effect. I don't really want to say domino effect, but it has those linking effects. Yeah. There's always a um, one system is being uh, modified, so the body's sort of um, responding to it in that yeah. regard. Yeah, there's yeah. definitely a really close correlation between the changes that we see um, from a metabolic point of view and the cardiovascular point of view as well because 
of the it could there's such such a cascade effect and it's like is this factor influencing um, and causing another factor or is it happening from a physiological approach and quite often it's it's very multifactorial um, mm. but like from our metabolic point of view, if we're having an increase in um, visceral fat, um, if we're having insulin resistance, which we know can happen um, due to the reduced presence of, of estrogen, we're starting to develop some risk factors for our metabolic syndrome. And then in, a, in addition, as Jackie mentioned, we're getting that endothelial stiffness. So we've got further cardiac risk factors. So it's really no wonder that cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death for, for women um, then closely followed by breast cancer. Um, as well with those um, cardiometabolic risk factors as well. So um, it's really, really important to start being considerate of how can we help address the, the cardiometabolic risk factors, reduce risk for metabolic syndrome and promote quality cardiovascular health for, for patients because it's something that can happen really silently um, without knowing until it is a little bit too far down the line and um, women, it's really common for um, heart attacks to not be well detected or not be well identified. Um, so uh, increasing that awareness and trying to take as much of a preventative and proactive approach is, is so key. So we'd really recommend screening from um, your metabolic and cardiovascular side of things to address that area of, of the piece. Um, Let's touch on a couple of um, systems. Let's look at um, a little bit more into pelvic um, symptoms if you're happy to take on that one, Jackie. Yeah, sure. So I suppose um, looking into more your pelvic floor considerations sort of links in with your musculoskeletal um, adaptations. So um, when we go into the integrity of muscle, um, it is going to become a little bit more lax um, with that muscle atrophy effect that was mentioned a bit earlier on. Um, so pelvic floor tone and ability to contract and, and relax. Um, sorry, I suppose more pelvic floor engagement is being impacted um, because if we think of the pelvic floor as its own muscle group, which it is, um, and it needs its own training, same, same pr um, principles as your, your typical musculoskeletal um, pr um, principles. So that's being impacted where it's weakening in its sense of being able to contract or maintain the integrity that it had prior to menopause. So a lot of symptoms or some symptoms that some women can um, start to report could be things like incontinence and things like, um, and that can go hand in hand with, you know, your urogenital um, symptoms as well. So um, that screening is just as important um, in conjunction with everything else we've said. And there's, again, there's a lot of systems that are at play here, but we're starting to realize the more that we work within the women's health health um, space that pelvic floor needs to be addressed a little bit more and opened up in a conversation so that we can optimize what's happening within the gym space. Um, again, because if that muscle group isn't strong enough, then we need to adapt um, our exercise accordingly so it's safe for women. Um, that they're not experiencing things like incontinence um, and those symptoms, those yeah. sort of symptoms, yeah. It's really interesting because I've, we've learned to start to ask more about um, pelvic floor and pelvic health-related um, symptoms for women, not just postpartum. Like, it's it's 
really, really important to screen across the lifespan because, and a lot of women won't understand that they need to disclose that as well. So it's, it is important. It's your responsibility to, to ask and then educate why you're asking because, um, yes, even if they haven't had a, um, a vaginal delivery or a natural birth or they even if they have had a C-section in history or they've had no babies at all, there is definitely that risk for when the, the decline of if the decline of the um, pelvic muscle tone does occur with with atrophy, um, that there is an increased risk for prolapse and incontinence as well. Yeah. Um, so really, it is key to still continue to ask that even outside of the postpartum space because you can pick up a lot of really important information that can make a big difference to someone's life. You could help them feel a little bit more confident about exercise without leakage or um, changes in their positive changes in their bladder and bowel habits that have really, really important um, uh, flow on effects and knowing if they need a referral to a, a women's health physio for a little bit more assistance and just making sure that those elements are managed if they are reporting symptoms or you think that they're are likely having symptoms is really key before we then start to add in some impact loading for bone health as well. Definitely. Yes, yeah. that's really important. Um, sometimes women, they just won't disclose it and they'll go through experiencing these symptoms thinking that it's not as an exercise physiologist burden, um, but it's important for us to be really quite quite aware of that and, and can have a big influence as well. So um, I think let's move... Um, quickly to a little bit about sleep quality as well and how that can have an impact on things from an exercise point of view. Yes, so I think that was definitely a topic when we, when Caitlin and I first started talking a little bit more about menopause. Um, it's that rabbit hole of research for sure. And I think sleep quality is something that um, has yet to be really brought to the forefront in the research um, as to how we can manage it, I mm, suppose, yeah. is uh, sort of the words I'm looking for. Um, but it was interesting because there was a study in 2017 um, that was showing things where low-moderate levels of exercise from an aerobic point of view for 12 weeks actually had a really positive effect on sleep quality. Um, now, as Caitlin and I have mentioned a little bit earlier, sleep has a multitude of factors. Um, it's not only like your quality, but it's also the ability to go to sleep. Now this study as well said that it didn't change um, a woman's ability to, to fall asleep, but it did improve the quality of sleep, which we know has that, that positive effect for muscle regeneration post-exercise, making sure that we're um, energized for the rest of the day um, and optimizing our, our week and our day to come. Mm -hmm. So um, it's also another way that we can manage those, again, all of those symptoms that we've said from the get-go. Um, sleep quality is definitely one that's quite important. Um, so I think, again, the research is still a little bit, um, it's sort of a gray area, and I think that this is something that hopefully can be brought to yeah. light in the near future. Um, have you noticed anything else in terms yeah, of the sleep quality? I think definitely there's a lot of really promising research that um, sleep is obviously quite a, once again, another multifactorial thing. Um, my favorite word. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's a very uh, highlighted word in menopause here. Yes. <laughs> Just covers all bases. 
Um, uh, where there's obviously a lot of different things that can contribute to someone's sleep quality, but there's lots of great evidence to show that um, uh, exercise has a really important role in trying to assist with with sleep quality um, and then therefore the benefits that can be achieved as a result of that because people who are consistently having poor sleep, that has really detrimental effects on on our physiological systems, particularly our, our cardiac health and our brain health as well, let alone our recovery and our metabolic health, weight management, all of those things. So it's one of those elements that's important to look at when you're working with um, males and females. Um, so because if that's not being addressed and all of those symptoms are compromised, um, systems are compromised as a result, um, your capacity for benefit through exercise will be a little bit inhibited. So finding ways to help um, uh, people enhance their sleep as much as possible is is really, really key. So addressing as many things as, as we can. And it's interesting because with menopause, there's an increase, there can be an increase in um, uh, prevalence of sleep apnea as well that can occur, which can have a massive impact on like quality of sleep so they might be sleeping through for the normal duration but their quality of sleep might not be great at all due to due to the sleep apnea um and then also sleep disturbance due to those vasomotor symptoms so waking frequently during the night due to the hot flashes or hot flashes can really disturb that sleep quality as well so um this might be a good opportunity for us to do another sleep podcast in the future i think and I think use so what we've what the team's learnt um in the last year it's been a, quite a hot topic for mm. for us so I think we'll bookmark that one for the future. Um, but probably main takeaway there would be to make sure that it is consideration for you when um, uh, working on a lifestyle intervention with, with someone or if you're noticing that we're not getting good um, responses with, with an exercise intervention. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a really good point too, Caitlin. Um, it just brought to light a conversation I had with a client earlier this week where – you know, she comes into her session, we've, we've chatted about what's going on physical activity-wise, and then she said she's feeling lethargic, and I go, oh, well, how's your sleep been going? And she goes, yeah, no, it's great, I'm getting, I'm getting six, seven hours, eight hours as well, and then, you know, you sort of take a step back and you go, well, how do you feel after that, and is it, is it a consistent sleep as well? And she goes, oh, you know, I'm, I wake up four or five times throughout the night, or, um, I'm still feeling not refreshed. So mm -hmm. I think that's, an, again, something to flag and sort yeah. of open up the conversation as well a little bit further. Um, yeah, yeah, so that sort of um, can common. be something to, yeah, <laughs> yeah, to sort of delve into a little bit definitely, more with clients. Definitely yeah. a common um, thing that gets reported as well. Like some people are really aware of it and they're like, oh, my sleep is so terrible. But they don't know where to start. I usually find referring back to the GP is just the best starting point to find just the optimal um, approach, talking to them about the different elements and then obviously mm -hmm. referring on to um, different allied health professionals depending on what is relevant for for the um, individual circumstances. Obviously, there's lots more kind of available availability of like um, sleep clinics and those kinds of things now that can be really, really helpful. But sometimes it's as simple as some good lifestyle change and making some good changes to sleep hygiene as well as usually a pretty great place yeah, to start. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, we might wrap it up there and just wrap up with a few key takeaways from today. Um, I think ultimately coming back to understanding that we can start to see the symptoms of menopause present from 
um, 40 for um, the majority of women and then um, a smaller percentage will experience, unfortunately, that early onset or premature or um, uh, cancer-related induced um, menopause as well. So having that in the back of your mind for any um, female patient that you are seeing. Um, we know that the symptoms can be very broad. We've covered a, a, fair, a fair few today, but there's still a fair few that we haven't got into um, as well. So trying to keep your your mind aware, hopefully it just gives you enough to kind of understand how it can really have a pervasive impact on all of the different physiological sim systems and therefore um, how exercise can then have a, a positive role as well. Um, Jackie, did you have any key points that you wanted to leave with anyone? Yeah, I think the, the key point, especially after talking to Caitlin about this quite a bit um, over the past however long, it's yeah. been a while, again, <laughs> rabbit hole discussion. Yeah. Um, I think it's normalising menopause yeah. and bringing it to light with clients and feeling comfor comfortable but confident in what you're asking as well and being able to provide that information because, again, it's an area if you are not comfortable with, clients will be able to see that and they're already probably not comfortable sharing it. So really getting your head wrapped around um, sort of what we've talked about today from the physiological symptoms being impacted, but again, bringing to light that it is a normal process in a woman's lifespan and there are ways that we can manage symptoms, but also ways that we can still help women become stronger throughout their lifespan. And the older they get doesn't mean that they're getting frail. They can mm. be quite strong and keep building and progressing from there. So, Absolutely. yeah. Oh, that's great, Jackie. That's such a good summary. <laughs> I love that. Um, in terms of like resources, if you're looking for somewhere to start, we have completed a podcast um, on upskilling in women's health. So definitely check out that one. It's got a specific section on um, menopause as well. We talk about some different um, uh, resources that we find useful there. So feel free to check out that one. Um, otherwise, that's all from us today and we'll look forward to seeing you on the podcast again. Thanks, Jackie. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Caitlin. Thanks for listening to the Body Track Academy podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and found something useful, you know what to do. Hit the subscribe button, leave us a review, and tell your friends to check it out. If you're not already in the Body Track Academy on Facebook, look us up. Join our community of exercise physiologists and access more great content.